God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We've not always known what God is like, but now we do. Brian Zond. In this sermon series on the Gospel of John, we're trying to understand this idea that if we want to know what God is like, then we look at Jesus. And there's all kinds of places in the Bible we can do that, but we've chosen to do that uh, for these next weeks, the next period of time from the Gospel of John. So Jesus, God shows up in the person of Jesus, and who remembers the very first words that were spoken about this God showing up in the person of Jesus? Does anybody remember? It was just two weeks ago. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God shows up on the stage, and those are the first words. This is what God is like. He's like a lamb who bears on his shoulders and takes away the sins of all the world. And what was the first thing that this God who shows up in Jesus did? Turned the water into wine. He went to a wedding. With all the tensions of a wedding, all the joys, all the sorrows past, all the expectations, all the things that might go wrong, all the things that do go wrong. And what does he do? 180 gallons of the best wine. God shows up on the stage. And these are the first things we hear and see. Today, he's showing up with a whip. This is the second thing that God does, according to the book of John, the way John is framing it, when Jesus shows up. Familiar story. We're going to read it from John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. God shows up at the scene in this temple, in this court, 
This story appears in every one of the four Gospels. It appears in little different forms in each one, and I'm not going to go into all of those differences or why it even appears at different times in the Gospels. I'd like to zoom in on this particular story. And as I think I've said every Sunday that we've been doing this, we, we bring a lot of assumptions to these stories. And it's been very interesting and helpful to me to just try to put those aside for a moment and just focus on what's actually in this text. What does this text tell me? And see if we can go somewhere from there. Again, focusing on the story, God is showing up in this world and he's showing up like Jesus. The first thing is just a little bit of, I call it maybe a little administrative detail, but it is helpful to look at the, um, how the temple was set up so that you can understand what was really happening here. This is Herod's temple. Uh, the whole uh, temple that was, was built by Herod, it took, uh, took quite a while to build it. And uh, here are the outer walls right along here. And then right here at number eight is the court of the Gentiles. So Gentiles were allowed to come into this court. They weren't allowed to go any further. And it's likely, most likely, it never, nowhere is it actually stated literally that this is the case, but it's most likely, almost certain, that right here in this court of the Gentiles is where this marketplace uh, happened. As the pilgrims, the Jews, came to Jerusalem every year for the Passover, then uh, they were able to buy their animals for the sacrifice there to exchange coins as needed uh, and so forth. Um, Gentiles were not allowed to go any further than this line. In fact, they have found signs, old signs, put up that say to Gentiles, if you cross these lines, you can be put to death. So Gentiles were not allowed to move further than this outer, than, than this uh, ring right here. And then um, entering into here, anyone who was a Jew could enter. Uh, women were allowed to be in this place. And then uh, Jewish men were allowed to pass further, closer to the, the sanctuary, the actual shrine. And then only priests were allowed to go in here. And then you probably know about the Holy of Holies, which is back here. That was only the high priest and only once a year. So there's this, this marketplace going on on this, on this temple court. And Jesus comes in and he sees what's happening there. And the question is, why does he get so angry? Why does he pick up a whip? This had been going on for decades, if not centuries. It was a pretty normal part of uh, the, the scene in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Why does Jesus get so angry? Well, if you just look at John, here's the sentence that Jesus, uh, Jesus says. It's in John chapter 2, verse 16. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So if you just focus in on this, again, try to put everything else that you've heard and know away. In John, 
the Gospel of John, the Apostle of John, when he's trying to show us what does it look like when God shows up on the scene, this is what he puts down. This is what he writes. Take things, these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now this word house here is a pretty familiar Greek word in that time, the word oikos. And it means, it has a wide range of meaning. It means literal house, literal building. But it also means family. You could see it as the basic unit of society, which includes both the physical house and everything you need to actually physically live, as well as the people living in that house. And remember, in these cultures, this is a communal society, so it's never just ma and pa and two kids. There's always, there's always family there. This is the meaning of the word house. And Jesus says that my temple, this temple is the Father's house. It's this combination of physically where he lives, but also this family that's there. And then Jesus, as he goes on a little bit further, brings it even closer to himself. And here we get into a little bit of theology, but I'm going to project the text. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. The word temple is used here in these passages a lot, but it's actually a single English translation of two Greek words. They're two different words. The first word for temple that's used above uh, where they talk about the temple is just actually the building of the temple. The word that's used in these verses that's translated temple actually means something like shrine. So you have temple and you have shrine, which is this holy place. So let me translate it that way. Jesus answered them, destroy this shrine and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this shrine, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the shrine of his body. And with his word shrine, of course, you think of this holy place. It's not just a building. It's not like, like just this frame here. It's, there's something holy happening here. And what's happening here? Well, you've heard this from me lots of times over the last years. That what's happening when God shows up on the scene, and when he shows up on, in Jesus, is that God's space is meeting man's space. Heaven and earth are meeting. You may be familiar with this Irish a Celtic idea of the thin place. If you've ever been to Ireland, you've probably experienced a kind of a thin place. There's just this magical place where it's like heaven and earth meet. And that was a, that was a, that's a concept in the Irish culture, this place where heaven and earth meet, a thin place. And when God shows up in the person of Jesus, God's space and our space meet. And that's the shrine. This is the Father's house. God's space 
meeting our space. So Jesus is walking into this temple court, this Gentile court, into the house of God. There's something very different happening here. God's space is meeting our space. And then you may remember the last uh, chapter of uh, Revelation, also written by this same apostle. Where, God, where, where John sees this vision of the holy city, New Jerusalem, and he says, I saw no temple in the city. For the temple is the Lord, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see how John's bringing all these themes together? So the first thing that's happening as Jesus walks into this court of the Gentiles is that God's space and our space is coming together. And God always means that that place become a family. That everybody's included. So that's the first thing. The house of God. This, my Father's house. And then Jesus says, don't make my Father's house. Don't make this place a place of, and I'll put in parentheses, just trade. Because trade is not in and of itself bad. We have to trade in order to live. Don't make it a house of trade. Trade was in that time and is in our time absolutely necessary. But what's happening here, I think, is in this Jerusalem, especially in this time, there's religious, political, and economic tension. Again, as I say almost every Sunday, if you think our time is turbulent, go back then. Everything was boiling. Everything was ready to explode. All it needed was a spark. And in that tension, especially at Passover, which was the Feast of Liberation, it's the feast that the Romans were most afraid of because they knew that with the celebration of Passover, the Jewish people were remembering that God had liberated them from oppression all those years ago and that He might do it this year. The Romans were nervous. And that combination of religious exclusiveness of the Jews and the idolatry of mammon in this bustle of commerce formed a barrier for people to come into the presence of God. This, this shrine couldn't happen this God's space meeting man's space was hindered by all this focus on the political and economic and religious tension, particularly along the idea of exclusivity. We keep the Gentiles out. We keep the women out. We keep the men out. 
we keep the priests out. You see how the, the, the barriers of exclusivity are, are closing in. Till finally the only one who can meet God, the only place where man's space can meet God's space, is this one priest one time a year. And I think that's what's happening here. Jesus is protesting that exclusivity. And I think I can show that. And now I have to go somewhere else, not John, but somewhere else uh, in, the, in the New Testament. I, I think I could do it in John too, but there's a much, much easier example. Uh, we're on the Ethiopian Lord, I think. Um, yep. About five years later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, and after the church had started, a man named Philip, a disciple of Jesus, went out into the desert, and there he met an Ethiopian. And that Ethiopian was a eunuch. In today's language, we'd call him intersex. There was something either from his birth, or something had happened to him during his life, either by accident or on purpose, that made him not really male. And he had gone up to Jerusalem to worship God for some reason that we don't know. And he had, he, had, he had come into this temple that I just showed you on the map. And he had walked into that court of the Gentiles. There's no doubt about that. He had absolutely done that. And he had also seen those signs. You cannot go further than this place. And I suspect that he was also aware of this old text, the Torah, because he was reading it in that chariot. And he probably was aware of that rule in the Torah that said, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So not only was he just a Gentile, he was a eunuch. And for those two reasons, I'm not sure exactly, but he may not even have been in, able to enter the court of the Gentiles because of his being a eunuch. This man travels all the way up from Ethiopia, which is a long way, to worship God Man's space, he wants to meet God's space. And there's this wall. So Philip explains to him from Isaiah 53, explains to him about Jesus, the same Jesus who came into this court with the whip. And the Ethiopian eunuch hears it. And the first thing he says is here's water and then he asks the question and this is a striking striking question what prevents me from being baptized what barrier is there i've heard this text all my life and i've never heard this pointed out it was pointed out to me about five years ago in a sermon by a transgender man 
What prevents me? And what's Philip's answer? Nothing. Doesn't matter that you're a Gentile. Doesn't matter that you're Ethiopian. Doesn't matter that you're black. Doesn't matter that you're a eunuch. Doesn't matter that you're intersex. None of that matters. There are no barriers anymore. And I think that's what John is trying to lead us into. When, this, when God, who shows up in the person of this Jesus, takes this whip and walks into this court, this, this temple, this monument to exclusivity, this monument to barriers. And he says, don't you take my father's house, my father's family, and make it a place of trade while you're keeping them and them and them and them out. In his book, Strangers and Scapegoats, Matthew Voss talks about, in, in different chapters, about all the, all the people that, that have been excluded through the centuries. Women. Intersex persons. Do you realize that there are probably as many intersex persons born in our culture as people with Down syndrome? And we keep them out. The exclusion of immigrants. The exclusion done by mass incarceration. The exclusion by labor slavery in order for us to get cheaper sneakers. We're willing to let children and women and men be enslaved and work for almost nothing. And we keep excluding. And we keep building walls and barriers. And you may say, well, but haven't things changed? We've gotten a lot better. It used to be really bad, but now we're a lot better. That's true. But then Matthew Voss asked this question of us. When we invite strangers in, are we demanding that they change to fit with us? Are we saying you are welcome here, but you need to fit into our way of doing things? Are we fundamentally afraid that they will bring new norms, that they will question our ways, that they will resist learning our language, that they may require resources that we've been used to spending on ourselves? They may need health care. They may challenge some of our traditions. They may even want to become the decision among the decision makers in our group. They may represent the end of one thing and the beginning of another. It may be that in the end, we will not be the same as we are now. And so even though we talk like we're open, in the end, are we really willing and able to change.
Which tables need to be turned over? Which coins need to be spilled on the ground? Which pigeons and doves and sheep need to be taken out of this house of God? God showed up in Jesus. He took a whip and he cleansed the temple to make a place for everybody. Even you. Even you. With whatever it is that stands in the way between you and this God, this Jesus. Sin, guilt, things you don't do well, pain you've suffered, abuse you've suffered, ways in which you've been marginalized. Jesus, as God shows up in the person of Jesus with a whip, says, I'm clearing the whole space out. And now it's open. What keeps me from becoming baptized and be part of this family? And the answer is now that Jesus has shown up with a whip. Nothing. Nothing for you. And nothing for anybody.